Amen. You can be seated. If you've got your copy of God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to open up with me to the book of Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. We have been walking through the book of Exodus this year of 2019, and week after week we have just been committing ourselves to trying to make sense verse by verse of this Old Testament Book. We've seen the famous stories found in Exodus, the stories of God delivering His people uh, through Moses, through the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea. We've seen that once set free, God sustains His people in the wilderness en route to Sinai. And then in the last uh, really couple months, we've been walking through this covenant that God enters into with His people Israel. A covenant that God says, if you will keep, if you will obey it, then I will bless you, I will be with you, I will make you prosper. But if you break my commands, if you go your own way, then instead of experiencing my blessing, you will instead face my judgment. Most famously, this covenant begins with the Ten Commandments, which we've just recently finished walking through. And then, really, after the Ten Commandments, we have this section in Exodus known as the Book of the Law. And the Book of the Law gives more specific application to Israelites about how to live out the values of God found in the Ten Commandments. And as I said last week, a lot of these laws we read and we immediately think, how in the world does this have any relevance to me today? A lot of these laws are about how Israel is to govern themselves. It has to do with all these topics that just don't seem relevant. So a lot of times we'll just skip over or speed read this when we're reading through the Scriptures. But we want to honor God's Word, because we believe all of it is inspired by God and profitable. So this morning, we turn to Exodus chapter 21, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6 and spend our time trying to make sense of what these verses say. So look with me, Exodus 21, verses 1 through 6. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. This is God speaking to Moses. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be the master's. And he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Imagine that you're a school teacher who loves your job. You have been trained to be a school teacher. You love to invest in the next generation. And you know from years of experience that for kids to grow, for them to learn, for them to be the best they can be, it requires them to be disciplined. It requires them to be held accountable 
to certain standards. This is the only way that they will grow. So for years, for decades, you as a school teacher have been a gentle and patient, but also a serious teacher. You stretch your students, you get the best out of your students, and you've developed a reputation for such. But after decades of faithful service, the school that you have been working in shuts down. And the only opening that you can find on short notice is a very different type of school. In this school, the new one, the teachers have no support from the administration. Students within the school and classrooms are never held accountable in any meaningful way. And the goal of most of the educators in this school is not to thrive, but instead merely to survive. You decide coming in that you will be a trailblazer. You will go against the grain, but you find that as you do so, the students openly rebel against your directives. You have no support from the administration, and you can teach the subject in no meaningful way. You're too busy trying to break up fistfights in class to teach geometry. You recognize that the only way for this school to change, and for these students to change is a culture change that will start in their homes, but also must be led by the school. But as a teacher, you don't have the ability to change these kids. You can't change their home life, you can't change the culture, and you can't change the administration. You want to be a part of this needed change, but you're limited in your ability to do so. So you have to wait You have to wait and stay there long enough that maybe you can affect the change in small ways at first. But while you wait for the right time to pursue these needed changes, you find yourself in a season of not being able to hold the students in your classroom to the standards that you know should be set. As things stand, you'll get nowhere if you try to implement your normal standards. But in order to survive until that needed change can happen, you're forced to put some controls on the kids in your classroom in order to keep them from being as evil and as bad as they could be. You're forced to merely try to control behavior, even though the standards that you have for your classroom are much, much higher than that. You don't condone all that is happening in your school and in your classroom But for the moment, you're only able to try to control it. Now, what in the world does any of that have to do with a random text from Exodus 21 about slavery? This is what it has to do. That is an admittedly imperfect analogy, but it gives us just a small and imperfect glimpse of what God is doing with Israel in certain parts of His law in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. There are certain practices found within the Bible, found within God's law. Practices like slavery, practices like polygamy, being married to multiple people at the same time, practices like even divorce that God in His law in the Old Covenant does not forbid and does not abolish, but instead He controls it and He puts limits on these practices in order to keep them from being abused and destroying Israel from the inside. 
Remember, Israel is like all mankind after Genesis 3. Fallen sinners. And God, in His grace, has promised to fix this rebellion. He's promised in time to roll back the curses of sin and the power of sin and the penalty of sin. But God knows that laws cannot change hearts. Rules cannot change hearts. And God is going to keep His promises. God is going to pay the penalty for sin and break the power of sin. He's going to do all those things. And we know that He does that ultimately through His Son, Jesus, who will come and do what we can't do, keep the law that we can't keep, pay the penalty for sin that we should pay and defeat the enemies we can't defeat like sin and death. We know that God is going to send His Son, Jesus, to do that. But at this point in history, in Exodus, all of that is still in the distant future. God is going to bring His plan to completion, but in the meantime, God is moving in that direction through the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. It's through Israel that the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, will come and be born in the future. So God needs His special covenant people, Israel, to survive long enough for the promised Messiah to come from them. And Israel's survival in the ancient Near East requires that they be separated from and distinct from the nations around them who are worshiping other gods. Israel's survival as a people requires that they know how to live at peace with one another and have certain orders and structures and values and principles that they live by so that their life as a people can reflect the values of God. So God begins to give Israel laws about how to live together. He starts to give them laws here about how to remain distinct from the peoples around them who worship other gods and will lead them astray. God knows that Israel cannot keep His laws perfectly. That's why as soon as He gives the Ten Commandments, what does He immediately start telling them to do? You've got to build an altar and start making sacrifices. Why? Because you will not be able to keep this law. God knows that the ultimate solution to their sin problem is Jesus, but His coming is not here yet. So in the meantime, God gives Israel laws that will make them distinct, that will teach them about God's character, and that will control them from being as bad and as evil as they could be. Now, the analogy that I shared at the beginning about the school teacher obviously has its limits. Unlike the school teacher, whose ability to change things in this new school is limited, God is not limited. God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. God could have changed hearts immediately. He could have held people accountable right then. He could have chosen to not merely control the sinful practices of Israel and those in the ancient Near East. But God, who is God, did what God wanted to do. And He did it in a different way. And that's His prerogative because He is God and we are not. God shows Israel instead their need for a Savior. How? By giving them laws that He knows they will not be able to keep. This will reflect to them individually and corporately their need for a salvation that they cannot produce on their own through law-keeping, and it will prepare them for that day in the future when the Savior Jesus comes. But until that day, God seeks in certain parts of His law 
to merely control Israel's sin from getting too out of hand, all the while never condoning it. I remember when I used to work at UPS, when I was in seminary, I would come into work and I would sit, I would be in the back of a truck loading and unloading boxes for hours at a time and whoever you ended up working with that day couldn't leave. So I got to have lots of conversations about the Bible and God and the Lord with people and they couldn't leave. It was kind of like they were prisoners to talk to me for the next three or four hours. Great, great evangelism opportunity. There was a man who uh, came and worked. He was one of my co-workers named Bill. Uh, he was in his 50s, um, African-American gentleman, uh, single dad raising his daughter who was a, um, finishing up high school. And he was a good guy. He was a good guy who was trying to live right, who was trying to take care of his family. And he would see how I would interact with and talk with other co-workers who were more my age about the gospel, and I would talk about the Lord as if He was real. He, he could tell there was something different, but the question that he always had, the thing that he could never get over, is how can you believe in a book that doesn't outright abolish and forbid slavery, but instead tells slaves or servants in the New Testament to submit to and obey your masters? How can you believe in a book and a God who would give restrictions for slavery in the Old Testament to Israel, but not abolish it? He knew that I was not in any way a racist, that I would regularly speak against those things when it would come up amongst co-workers, but he could not fathom how someone who was trying to live right and believe in God could believe these things. So what I want to do this morning is I want to try to explain how God can be good and still say what He says here. And I hope that you'll consider these things as we go through them. The first thing that I want to point your attention to in these verses is that unjust slavery was Israel's story. Unjust slavery was Israel's story. Remember, the Ten Commandments begin not with, you shall have no other gods before me, but instead, the prologue right before At the top of Exodus 20 says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of what? Out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Slavery had been Israel's life story. This generation of Israelites, all they had known their entire life was bondage in Egypt. Only recently had they been set free by the mighty and powerful hand of God. What does the book of Exodus tell us that this Egyptian slavery that Israel was under was like? It was based on your bloodline. It was based on your race. It was permanent with no hope of freedom. It involved masters who would treat you like property, who would use you for their ends, who would barely meet your physical needs, who were harsh and unrealistic in the expectations that they set for you. In short, the Egyptian slavery that Israel had been under all of their lives was a satanic 
practice that did not treat humans as being made in God's image, that did not treat humans unlike them as being inherently valuable. It was chattel slavery, not approved by God in any way. And sadly, this type of slavery has existed all throughout history, and it is not unlike the slavery that exists existed in our country's past. God's law clearly forbids this type of slavery. He, God's Lord clearly forbids slave trading, stealing people from their homes, acting as if you have authority over someone because of your race, treating people as if they are not made in God's image. Even in Exodus 21 that we're in, if you skip down just a few verses then what you'll find in verse 16 is it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Capital punishment. We're getting there soon, right? So if you're coming for like positive, encouraging, relevant, how does this fit into my life? Like, like We're just walking through the text, right? Capital punishment's coming up. But one of the things that was found in that capital punishment list is if you steal somebody and you make them a slave or you harbor a slave in Israel, you die. So, that was what God forbid. And I'm about to explain Exodus 21... And I'm about to explain what God says about this form of slavery in Israel. And I'm going to point out the differences between that and and, and what we typically think of when we hear slavery. But I want to be clear before I start. The form of slavery that occurred in our country angered God. And the fact that professing believers participated in it and used the Bible to justify their action shows that they did not rightly understand their Bibles. And the fact that professing believers today have been taught to think fondly on that time in history, who still seek to minimize and justify it. The fact that professing believers today make the choice to stay separate from people of other races in school and in church and in their homes. The fact that professing believers today still use sinful language to describe people of other races. All of those things that are still happening where we live today are in a abomination to our Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Because He came and He obeyed the law and He died on the cross for who? For people from every tribe and nation and tongue. He died for people from every race and therefore people from every race are made in God's image and inherently valuable to God. That should get a louder amen from you. All of us are sinners, no matter our race, no matter your race. All of us need grace. There are people from every race. There are people from every race that are irresponsible, that are unjust, that are lazy, that are worthless in the choices that they make and the way they live. And there are people from every race that love God, obey the law of the land, work hard, and are upstanding citizens. 
So when we regularly generalize about all the people of a certain race do this or that, we are speaking as one who is ignorant and unfair. And that happens all the time. In church, in the community, everywhere, everywhere it happens. And we're so used to it, we don't even think about it. If someone in our community who is the same race as you did something evil and you heard someone of another race say, oh, all those whites are just ruining the country. You would cry unfair and say, I have nothing to do with that person. But what happens today in the way we talk? We generalize about people of other races. Friends, these things are relevant today. The traditions and the attitudes that we have towards people of other races, the traditions and attitudes that we have inherited from our families and the culture that we have grown up in does not excuse our backwards thinking and practices today towards people of other races. Christians, this is why. I expect people who don't know the Lord Jesus to be racist. You know why? You know why? Because they are sinful and have sinful hearts and they've not been redeemed and they don't have the Holy Spirit and they're not conforming their image to the Lord and they're not recognizing their sin and they're living for themselves and they're following the things of the world. But believers must be different. Believers must be different. Why? Because the story of the gospel is a story where God picks us up out of the pigsty and turns us around and helps us and gives us a new heart to run after and love Him. And the Christian life, the normal Christian life, is one in which we are conformed to the image of Christ. We are renewing our mind, not after what the culture says, not after the traditions we grew up with, but we're renewing our mind and our thinking after the very Word of God, the very Word of God that says that chattel slavery is evil and worthy of capital punishment, the very Word of God that says that people, no matter their race, are made in God's image, the very Word of God that says racism and racial profiling is sinful. So with all that being said, I want you to understand crystal clear that the pastor today is not saying slavery is just fine, the Bible teaches it, amen. Don't you dare walk out of here saying that today. Or I'll call you on it. Now, with that being said, now that we're clear, I want to draw your attention to the differences between the type of slavery that is laid out here and the type of slavery that we immediately think of. I want to show you that even within God controlling, not condoning, a practice in the Bible, God's character and His, His cause for justice can be seen. So, so second point, Israel had a different or a distinct kind of slavery. Israel had a different, distinct kind of slavery. The Hebrew word in the original language for slavery can mean servant, slave, worker, or employee. And anyone in those categories is protected by the law of God because God values all mankind. The word in our Hebrew text, the original language that's translated oftentimes as master, can mean boss, employer, or it can mean master or owner. The words translated buy and sell can refer to any sort of financial transaction that's related to a contract laborer. So commentator Douglas 
Stewart helpfully explains that just like today in modern sports terminology, a player can be said to be bought or sold or traded, but that doesn't actually mean that they are the property of that team except as it pertains to the right of their employment to play that sport. Servants in Israel held the positions that they had by reason of a contract that they had signed up to perform. It's similar to one enlisting in the military today. You agree to a certain set of conditions for a certain period of time, but it is not something that is forced upon you. It is an optional thing that you pursue and volunteer. Now, when we hear words like slave and master and buy and sell, we immediately relate them to our history in our country. But there are crucial differences between the type of slavery that we're familiar with and the servitude that God is controlling here in Israel. Some ask, Nick, I hear what you're saying. Why didn't God just outright abolish slavery altogether? Well, I hinted at that earlier. And I want to point out, He did clearly forbid the type of slavery that we are familiar with. Like I just read Exodus 21, 16. That's what was going on in our country. But in addition, God also addresses this phenomenon of, of slavery in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And He gives foundational principles to control the abuses of these things. But He also gives foundational principles in thinking through these things that men in the future, like William Wilberforce in Europe, would use in leading the abolition of slavery across the pond, which eventually those same foundational principles of being made in God's image, which is found in God's Word, is at least partially the thinking and the reasoning behind the changes that happened in our own country. What God's doing here is He's allowing certain forms of servitude but He is bolstering them with safeguards and restrictions to ensure the protection and the welfare and the dignity of those who are serving. This practice in the ancient Near East, it's going to continue no matter what. So God is transforming the institution by regulating it and laying a path in the future to eliminate its abuse and eventually lead it to disappear altogether. So how's God going to do that? I want to point your attention to five differences between the slavery we're familiar with and what is described here in Exodus 21. First, slavery in Israel was voluntary. It was voluntary. People would hire themselves into the service of another. If they were poor, they oftentimes knew that the best way for them to meet their physical needs and to pay off debts that they had accrued was to become someone's servant for a period of time. In this way, they were less slaves, as we think of them, and they were more like an apprentice, a hired hand, or a laborer. They would live with their master, and they would work hard each day for room and board and an honest wage. This was no forced or involuntary slavery. It was always a choice that someone made in order to improve their life. And it was always voluntary. 
That's the first difference. The second is this. The slavery in Israel was always temporary. It was always temporary. We read it right here in our text. The service was for six years. And then your contract was up on the seventh year. So once you fulfilled your agreed upon time of servitude under this employer, you had the choice to start over, to start afresh. This would prevent people from living their entire lives and remaining in perpetual service to others. In fact, later in God's law in Deuteronomy 15, it actually says that when a servant chose to go free after six years, they were not to leave empty-handed. Instead, their masters were called by God to help them get started with this new life. They would give them a part of their flock and their threshing floor and their wine press. They were to remember these masters who had been employing these servants as they set them free that they as a people had once been in bondage and yet God had redeemed them and they were to show this same kind of grace in helping those get started who were going free. This practice in Israel was voluntary and it was temporary. Third, the practice of slavery in Israel was constructive. It was constructive. Usually in history, slavery only benefits the master. But it never, throughout history, almost ever benefits the slave in any meaningful way. But the purpose of this practice in Israel was at least in part to train men and women to be productive members of society. They likely volunteered to serve in this capacity in the first place because they found themselves in debt due to something outside of their control or oftentimes due to negligence on their part. If they had racked up a bunch of debt and had not been responsible, one of the ways that God provided for them to not live in perpetual form of poverty was to commit themselves to serve in this way for a period of time. Instead of being condemned to a life of poverty, God makes a way for people in Israel to improve their situation. This was one of the ways that God would train irresponsible men to manage their own affairs. All of a sudden, they would become a part of a stable household. Their physical needs would be met, and they would get on-the-job training to prepare them for the future. This was all in preparation for what? For their future freedom that would come. It served a constructive purpose. Fourth, slavery in Israel was fair. We just read about the slave will go in to this period of servitude, and then they will come out exactly as they went in. That's probably the part of the text that you kind of bristled at. That's the part I bristled at when I immediately read it, if I'm honest. It says that when they went in, if they went in single, they will come out single. If they went in married, they'll come out married. But if they went in single and then decided to marry someone else who was in the employ of the master there, and they had children, but they came in at different times when, when the, the husband, when his time of service was up and he was set to go free, his wife would still have to fulfill her contractual obligations. Sounds like splitting up families. This sounds unjust. It doesn't sound right on the surface. We hear this and we immediately kind of bristle, but just think about this from a business perspective. 
If you as someone who is financially responsible and who uh, has taken care of your business are able to employ different people to serve and help you in your business and all these different things, if you have spent your money and your resources for years... And it's a lot of times up front you've given a lump sum to take care of and receive services from a contract laborer and then they break that contract, it will hurt you financially. The right and fair thing to do is for the person who signs a contract to fulfill the agreed upon contract. That's the case. That's what's going on behind the scenes here. But also just think about it practically and how there's actually some benefit to the wife and children for a season to stay separated as the husband goes free. Just think about it. This husband and father was someone who more than likely was a former debtor who has now, over the course of six years, been trained to be a productive member of society. And when he leaves and begins to work, he now has time to prepare for his family to join him in the near future, to prove that he is a changed man, to prove that he is capable of providing. And if he does it right, he will soon have earned enough income to buy back the remainder of the freedom and to pay off the contract that his wife had entered into. This practice would also prevent the wife and children, to going out with this man before he's proven that he can financially and independently take care of a family. If he goes right back out and finds himself making the same decisions, it's going to ultimately harm the remainder of his family. So there's actually benefit in this system, even at first we don't see how. So this this system, this form of slavery, it was voluntary, it was temporary, it was constructive, and it also was fair. But the last thing that it was is according to our text, in many, t- in many ways, it was attractive. When this system was practiced rightly in Israel, when it was not abused, there are times that a freed man who had no obligation to stay under the employ of his master would love his master like a family and would prefer to serve Him all His days instead of going and starting a new life. In this case, God says other people in Israel need to be involved. There needs to be other people that will guarantee that this is not something that's being forced on or pressured by the Master. They would go to the elders of the city. Most likely they would go to the tabernacle where the priests were. And this person who wanted to commit their life to living life as a family member and a servant of this family would tell of this desire. And then they would all go together as a group to the master's home. And they would pierce his ear. Something that was a symbolic act. The ear was one of the most important parts of a servant's body. Why? Because in order to obey directives, you have to be able to hear. Piercing the ear was making a public commitment to this family that he would now commit his life to serving as well as to everyone else that this is my master and I will follow him all my days. The doorposts where this happened symbolize the master's household, the blood that would have come from the pierced ear would have marked a covenant between the master and this servant. Now you might ask, why would anyone in their right mind make a choice like that? 
Why would anyone throw away their freedom and independence and bind themselves to a master for life? And the only answer is love. The only answer that makes any sense is love. When you are respected, treated with dignity, shown grace and supported through thick and thin, it will produce in your heart love for the one who has shown these things to you. They are now your family. And when there is true love, you will joyfully follow the one who loves you all of your days. This form of slavery that is legislated here within the people of Israel... It was voluntary, it was temporary, it was constructive, it was fair, and it was even attractive. It's important for us to see and remember that unjust slavery was Israel's story. And they would be extremely hesitant to enter into and put others under the same kind of slavery that had been their life. It's important for us to see that they had a distinct kind of slavery that was legislated to them from God. But there's one last thing that I want to point your attention to, and that's this. That Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the law, all of the law, even these laws about slaves and masters. What are believers today called to do? We're called to surrender our lives to obeying God our Father, to surrender our lives in joy and submission to our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. In some New Testament texts, believers are even described as bondservants or slaves of Christ. That came up in Sunday school this morning at the beginning of Titus. And if your immediate reference when you hear words like slave or master is to antebellum chattel slavery in our country's past, then when you hear the Christian life described as being a bondservant or a slave of Christ, you're going to chafe against that and bristle against the idea. But if you're familiar with how God has legislated and even redeemed this practice throughout Israel's history, if you're familiar with the protection and the security and the support that this form of slavery would have provided for the downtrodden in Israel, then you will have a category in your mind for being a bondservant of one who is worth following. You'll have a category in your mind of being a bondservant who chooses service and surrenders not because you have to, but because you joyfully love following your good and gracious master. I'm not trying to romanticize slavery. Please please don't hear that or walk away. I'm not trying to. What I'm trying to tell you 
is that what Exodus 21 is legislating here is fundamentally different from what we usually think of when we hear slavery. It is so different, in fact, that it can even be described as being beautiful and redemptive. It can even be described as something that produces joy and love in the life of a servant. We today tend to think that independence that our freedom is the highest good, and that anything, anything at all that hinders my independence and my freedom to do as I please is dangerous. But friends, God has created all of us to live in submission to Him. And in this life, He also calls all of us in different ways to submit our lives to others whether it be governing authorities or laws or police, whether it be a pastor or a parent or an employer or a spouse, God has created our world where we are to live under His authority and in different ways to live under the authority of others. Part of the Christian life is submitting your life to those whom God has given authority over you. And our our sinful nature hates that. Our sinful nature chafes against any form of serving another, any form of submitting to another. But is it not true? Even with our independent tendencies, is it not true that submission can be a joyful experience when that submission is given to someone who is honorable and respectful and just and who loves us fiercely through thick and through thin. Is that not true? When you have a leader in your country or in your workplace or in your school or in your church or in your home that doesn't use their position of authority to take advantage of you, but instead is constantly laying down their lives to serve and love you, do you not willingly and joyfully follow their leadership? We do. And we've probably all at different times experienced the joy of following someone like that. And if you multiply that experience in this life times a trillion, then you arrive at who Jesus is. Philippians 2 calls believers. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, Do not be selfish. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. And then he says this, how do you choose to put others first and put their interests first? How do you choose to not be a navel-gazing, selfish, ambition-pursuing person that's different from the world? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who did what? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be taken advantage of. But what did He do? He emptied Himself and took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus Christ willingly took the form of a slave, willingly gave up His divine prerogatives as God the Son eternally existing, and He did that to take on flesh. Why? Because He loved His Father who had planned this sacrificial action because He joyfully submitted to His Father out of the overflowing and eternal love and trust that He had in Him. Jesus' submission to His Father whom He loved. His submission to the one He loved led Him to taking on the form of a servant, the form of a slave, where He would humbly commit His life to what? Not to pursuing His own agenda, but to pursuing the agenda of His Father, even to the point of sacrificially laying down His life. And as Jesus' life and death and obedience were finally finished, His Father raised Him from the dead and gave Him the name above every name so that Jesus would now be what? The Lord and Master of all. Having paid our penalty, having broken our powerlessness, having silenced and disarmed our enemies, having guaranteed an unswerving and eternal inheritance for His people, Jesus has proven Himself to be a Lord and a Master who is worth following all of our days, who is worth trusting in and surrendering to, who is worth committing every second of our lives from this point forward and on to having surrendered his all in joy to his father king jesus now calls us to surrender our all out of joy to him jesus is the one who saves jesus is the one who leads jesus is the one who sustains jesus is the one who transforms jesus is the perfect submissive servant and he is the perfect loving master jesus fulfills perfectly the redeeming purposes of this Israelite slavery that we read about in Exodus 21. And Jesus calls us to look to Him, to trust in Him and His finished work, and to surrender all of our lives to Him. A Hebrew who loved his master would commit his life to Him by doing what? By having his blood shed when his ear was pierced at the doorpost of the house. But Jesus loved his father and committed his life so strongly to his will that he was willing to take on the form of a servant and have his blood shed not by having his ear pierced, but by dying on the bloody tree of Calvary. And that blood-stained commitment to His Master offers us forgiveness and transformation and a future. That blood-stained commitment that Jesus made leads us in amazement and wonder to joyfully submit our lives and surrender to the One who laid it all down for us. That blood-stained commitment leads us to bow the knee 
to confess Jesus as Lord and to publicly declare our allegiance to Him as King, not through shedding our blood, but by symbolically dying and rising again in the waters of baptism, a public declaration of what God has done in our hearts. Jesus makes this possible. Jesus is the perfect slave. Jesus is the perfect master. And Jesus is the only one who is worth committing your life to. The question is, will you commit your life to Him? Will you surrender your will to Him? Friends, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what you come with this morning, what you're facing. But friends, if you don't know Him, if you don't know the joy of surrendering to and submitting to a Savior and King who loves you so much that He died for you, if your need this morning is salvation, my prayer is that you will repent of your sins and trust not in your works, not in your church attendance, not in your giving, Not in some experience, but you'll trust in what He did because Christ surrendered it all for you. And if you're here this morning and you recognize that there are areas in your life where you're not surrendered to Him, where His will is not being done, then my prayer is that in repentance and brokenness you will cry out to Him because He truly is the Master who is worth surrendering all to. Whether your need this morning is salvation renewal, transformation, or whether your need is God's sustaining grace in the midst of the upheaval and storm of life that you're facing. My prayer is that as we close, you will go to Him, pray to Him, and respond to Him as the Spirit leads. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You this morning for Your grace and Your mercy. And we acknowledge, God, that we can only be saved, can only be sanctified. We can only be transformed because you have shown us a grace and mercy that is wholly undeserved. God, we acknowledge this morning that you have spoken to us in your word and that you call us to surrender all of our lives to you. God, your word oftentimes has admittedly difficult things to make sense of. But God, we know that you are a good and just God, who always does what is right. God, we pray that You will enlighten our minds to know You more through the study of Your Word. We pray, God, that You will draw us to Yourselves this morning and help us to remember, Lord, that we are not saved by surrendering our all to You, but we can only be saved because of what Your Son Jesus surrendered for us. God, as we close, as we sing... We pray that you will get all the honor and glory this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.